Well, hello, Christ Chapel. Great to see you. Hello to all of you joining us at the South Campus, West Campus, Hive, Converge, all of you streaming with it. Just wonderful uh, to worship with you on this Sunday. Uh, I just wanted to say, many of you already know that I, I grew up in a small town in Texas. I'm a small country boy. Uh, the, the town that we grew up in was actually less than 1,300 people. And actually to say that I grew up in that town is probably not accurate. We actually grew up seven miles outside of that town. So I am a country, country boy. So sometimes you get some country language that gets thrown into the sermon. So thank you for grinning and bearing with it. I really appreciate it. But there's a kind of a a country phrase that I think even you city folk understand, uh, which is kind of this proverb that says, you know, don't put all of your eggs into one basket, right? That's kind of a country phrase because uh, you're not probably collecting eggs. Well, actually, I think it's really trendy these days to have your own chickens uh, in your backyard. So maybe you do. Uh, But you know that phrase, it's been colloquialized, you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket. And that means, you know, don't uh, gather all your resources, don't put all your valuables into one particular place or one particular endeavor. Because if you do, if tragedy strikes, you could lose everything. That everybody knows what that means. It's used in business all the time. And the principle there is, you know, diversify, diversify, diversify. Put your eggs in different baskets. So if one of those baskets falls, you still have eggs available to you. Here's my question. What if you only have one basket? I mean, if you only have one basket, you, you don't have multiple baskets to be able to put eggs in, then you have a real problem. That means that with that one particular basket, you've got to protect it. You've got to protect that basket because everything valuable is all in there. You got to do everything you can to assure the future of those eggs by protecting that basket. And that's what we're going to talk about today in Matthew chapter 2. So if you will, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter two, we're gonna continue our series called Heaven Sent, but we're going to back up a little bit today. I know last week we did Matthew chapter four and we'll pick up on the end of Matthew chapter four next Sunday. But the reason why we're backing up to Matthew chapter two today is because today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And this is the Sunday that we've traditionally set aside to raise up the value of human life, the sanctity and dignity and value of life. And this particular passage draws on those particular principles. We get a very clear contrast here about how God feels about life and how the world feels about life. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go back to this Matthew chapter 2. And the reason why I use this kind of image of the eggs in one basket is because essentially that's what Jesus was. He was the basket. And all of our eggs were in that basket. All all, all of our hopes, all of our dreams for our future, redemption, restoration, hope, eternal life, all of our eggs are in that basket. There were not multiple baskets. There were not multiple Jesuses. There was one Jesus that had to be protected. His life had to be protected. And Matthew chapter two tells us exactly how God did that and how he feels about 
protecting life. And so what I want to do is just go through these passages. I want to teach you about what happened in the life of Jesus, but then I want to draw some principles so that you and I understand how to apply the message as we embody God's heart. Remember, that's why we're doing this entire series, is to embody the heart of Jesus in our own back. Yard. So let's look at verses 13 to 15 of Matthew chapter 2, because I want you to see that God divinely protected his son, his one and only son, who would later fulfill his ultimate purpose. We're going to look at verses 13 to 15. Now, if you, if you remember the kind of the story that we've, we've led up to this point, it doesn't look like God is doing much to protect the life of Jesus so far. If you remember kind of Matthew chapter one, I mean, he, he, Jesus ar- arrives in the womb of Mary in very particular circumstances that are quite strange that almost cause mom and dad to, to break up uh, or, or husband and wife, more accurately said, to break up. Then they go to Bethlehem. There's no room in the inn. So he doesn't get this comfy place to be born. He goes into a, a stable, a cave is what it actually is where they kept animals. So not the most sanitary of conditions. And you go, is God really trying to protect his son? Here's, a, here's an example of how he does that. Verse 13, it says, now when they had departed, and that's the wise men, I'll pick up on that in just a second. When the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. Why? For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. I'll stop right there for just a moment. Now remember, I referenced the wise men here because that's what is right in the beginning of these verses. Remember, the wise men had come from the east, or the magi, as we uh, called them. They come from the east. They come to Jerusalem looking for the king of the Jews. And they go to Herod in Jerusalem, who calls himself the king of the Jews, even though he's an Edomite. And they say, where's the king of the Jews? He inquires of the scribes and those uh, chief priests. And they say, well, of course he's in Bethlehem. So Herod sends the wise men to Bethlehem and says, come back to us Come back to me so that I, therefore, can go and worship this king of the Jews as well. But remember, the motives were not pure in Herod's heart. He wanted to go, just as this says, to destroy that child. So the the Magi go, they worship Jesus, but then being warned in a dream, that's verse 12, they departed another way. They didn't go back to Herod. And so there are these divine dreams that are taking place. And actually, Joseph gets the third dream in this Matthew narrative. The first one was, do not divorce Mary. The second one are the Magi, go a different way. And this third one is, flee to Egypt. Now, we don't know exactly where they went in Egypt, but just trying to give you some perspective about where they went. Remember, they're in Bethlehem. Many commentators think that they went all the way to Alexandria. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. These were the major cities in Egypt at that time. And you think, how does a young couple with a a newly born son make that huge trip and stay there for a while? 
Well, this is where I think in the providence of God, just kind of a fun fact, I think this is what those gifts that the Magi brought to worship Jesus were used to pay for. I think that they used those gifts to pay for their time there. So in God's provision, he provided not only divinely in a dream, but practically through the resources to provide the protection of his son. So they go off to Egypt and he says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken in Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I called my son. You understand the, what this is kind of hearkening back to, which is the deliverance of God's people from Egypt out of slavery into the promised land, into the freedom. This is depicting Jesus is the one to lead us out of slavery into the promised land, into the freedom that comes through a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. So God divinely protects his son here. Why? Because he's got an ultimate purpose for him. Later on, there's a purpose that was to be realized. If he had sacrificed his son at this time, we wouldn't have the rest of the gospels. We wouldn't have the rest of the, the proof that he is the son of God. He is the one who he said he is. He is the anticipated Messiah, the one who is the coming king. And so he protects his life to fulfill a purpose later on. But his life seemed to be the only one spared in Bethlehem at that time of those kids his age. You see, God's heart was grieved when Herod perceived that a threat, that his life and livelihood was threatened and therefore took innocent lives. See, Herod feeling threatened, he decided to take these drastic measures to assure his control, to assure that his kingdom would remain. We see that in verses 16 to 18. It says, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. It's the only time that we see that word uh, furious in the New Testament. And it actually, uh, more accurate, he goes into a fit of rage. And he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to that time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. So Herod, feeling insecure about his own plans, his own power, the continuance of his kingdom, his rule, his reign, his way, decides to take matters into his own hands and he systematically puts out a hit list for all the male children who were two years old and younger. Now, this was not uncharacteristic of Herod. Herod, actually, every time he felt threatened, seemed to go directly to murder. Uh, if you look back throughout history, uh, the list of, of those that Herod murdered, he murdered the entire dynasty that came before him. He murdered half the Sanhedrin. He murdered 300 court officials. He murdered his own wife, her mother, and three of his very own sons. All because he felt his purpose, his desires were under threat. And so he's just gonna remove the threat and so this was not uncharacteristic of Herod. And so we know from that 
time when Herod says, go and kill all the boys, two years old and younger, based upon probably what the population was of Bethlehem, that could have been anywhere from 20 to 30 boys. Young, young young boys. Okay, you know that that hits me. I got two little boys. That's a a hard one. And so he he says, "Go, go kill all those boys. What, now if that's not tragic in itself, there's another thing that even makes it more tragic in my own opinion. And that's this little phrase that it says here, in all that region. It's not, not, just, not just Bethlehem, but in all that region. Now we don't know what that region would have been. Some think that maybe that included, uh, obviously it included Bethlehem, but some think it included Ramah. Ramah was just, uh, just about five miles north of Jerusalem. Remember, Bethlehem is just about five miles southwest of Jerusalem. And so you, you need to have this picture. And if, and if it's taking those uh, uh, measurements into account in a sense, then this could have been anywhere between a 10 and 12 mile radius. But he says, go wipe out essentially a generation. At least 20 to 30 boys. But in that region, I don't know what the 2X, 3X, 4X, I don't know what the multiplier was. And he says, this was to fulfill what was in Jeremiah 31. And in Jeremiah 31, you hear about Ramah weeping with loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. Ramah was the staging ground when Nebuchadnezzar had exiled the Israelites to Babylon. And so that was the staging ground there. So the mothers saw their children being taken to Ramah before they would be exiled hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles to Babylon and never see them again. And it says Rachel weeping here. Rachel is personified as basically the mother of Israel here. Why is she weeping? She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So Matthew is linking this uh, deportation, this, this foreign enemy who is eliminating God's chosen people with what is happening here Herod, this spirit of evil that is wiping out these young boys, the next generation to come, these kids that these moms will see no more. Now, it's tragic enough to think that these 20 or 30 boys' lives were lost, and one of the things that I've read is that some people discount this particular Um, account in in Matthew, meaning they say that there is no other extra biblical reference to this event occurring. And they say, so therefore it it is not true. Well, I think it is true. I just think this event flew under the radar because of all the other things that Herod did. Remember the things I just listed to you? I mean, he kills his own wife, his own mother-in-law, 300 of the court officials, half the Sanhedrin, the entire dynasty, three of his own sons. How does this make a blip on the radar? Just another thing King Herod does to secure and assure his rule and reign. And when we think about the tragedy of these 20 to 30 children at least, of their lives lost. 
uh, I, I think it, we've got to acknowledge the tragedy in our own country where 2,300 babies are aborted every day. Every, every day in our own country. And in some senses, you go, I, I, never, I never knew that. I, I never knew that, that number. I never knew how vast it was. You know what? Sometimes I think it flies under the radar because of all the other tragedies that get the headlines and grab the headlines in our own world. But it's tragic nonetheless and one that needs to be acknowledged. Just the same reason why God acknowledges this in putting it in Scripture so that we understand his value of life. See, his heart was grieved. That's why he talks about Rachel and Ramah. His heart is grieved. And our hearts should be grieved by this as well because we believe every child is heaven sent and should be protected for a purpose. Every child is heaven sent and should be protected for a purpose. Psalm 127 verse three says, children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward from him. And if you don't believe that, talk to a couple that is struggling to get pregnant. They will assure you that every child is a gift from God and a reward from him. They pray for that valuable gift from God to be given to them. See, we believe every child is heaven sent and should be protected for a purpose. And I wanna give you I want to tell you why we believe this, because we don't believe this because uh, Cody has some sort of political leaning, and I know that you may have some uh, personal baggage, you may have some background, you may have some political thoughts, all those things. I don't believe any of this except that Scripture teaches this. That's why I believe this. And so what I want to do is very quickly, I just want to walk through a few of those scriptures that speak specifically to the value that God places on life and is a reason why we should believe that every child is heaven sent and should be protected for a purpose. So the first one is this, scripture, we believe that because scripture teaches that life begins at conception. Life begins at conception. In Psalm 139, verse 13, he says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Scripture teaches that life begins at conception, but guess what? Science affirms it. Science affirms that same thing. And I don't have time to go into all the science, but you know that after conception, I mean, within a month, that baby grows 10,000 times it's, it's size at conception. In seven days, you can figure out the gender of that child. I mean, there, there are so much science that backs this up. Life begins at conception. And just, just to make a, just a very practical uh, point, everyone draws a line at where life begins in our world. Everyone. The ironic thing to me is that for a lot of people, that line is based on size. Size of the child is what, is what I mean. Now think about if we applied that in our normal world today, where it's like, if you're five foot eight, you're more valuable than a person who's five foot five. It'd be pretty weird, wouldn't it? You would say, no, 
a five foot five person is just as valuable as a five foot eight person and just as valuable as a six foot one person, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody draws a line at where life begins. We just believe that scripture teaches and science affirms that life begins at conception. The second one, scripture explicitly condemns murder. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, it says, you shall not murder. This is part of the 10 commandments that were listed. There are no qualifiers there, no circumstances given. It is just point blank, period. That's it. You shall not murder. And you say, well, Cody, that's only talking about adults. Hold on. Go back and read a little bit because in the next chapter, in Exodus chapter 21, there is actually a value put on the preborn life. And it says, if a preborn life is taken, then it says it's life for life. Preborn life for postborn life. And I'm using those terms specifically. The child that hasn't been born yet is taken, taken adult life. Life for life, same value whether it's in the womb or outside of the womb. Scripture also teaches that each person has inherent value. Each person has inherent value. In Genesis chapter one, verse 26 and 27, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man In his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What I think is interesting about this verse is that he does not say that humans will have dominion over humans. Humans have dominion over all of these other things that are listed here, and then he creates male and female in his image, both giving them inherent value because they are created in the image of God. And I think that's a great lesson for us to take and apply to the preborn child. But man, you might need to hear that today. You have inherent value. As I studied this and prayed about it all week long, I just felt like this is one that, uh, this is a point that I need to apply to you, whomever is listening, because you might not feel valuable today. You might not feel like people want you around. You are valuable. (laughs) You have inherent value. You are created in the image of God. He loves you. He has a purpose for you. He has a plan for you today and forever, just like he has a plan for that preborn child as well. Fourth, Scripture teaches each person has God-given purpose. I love this verse in Jeremiah 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. That means I I set you apart. I set you on a trajectory. I had a purpose for you. I had appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, we're not all appointed as a prophet to the nations, but I don't think that that means that these things don't apply to us. I think God knows us before we're in the womb. God has a plan for us. God has a purpose for us. He consecrates. He sets us apart. He has a trajectory for our lives. And one of the wonderful things is getting to find out what that is as we walk in his ways and follow him. But he has a purpose for every child. I don't know what that is. God knows what that is. And far be it from me to stifle or stop that person getting to see or live out 
God's purpose for them. And then finally, Scripture illustrates God's heart for children. Scripture illustrates God's heart for children. And I put this one in here because uh, somebody could maybe say, well, Cody, all the, all the illustrations and all the texts that you've just used, they're all Old Testament. Okay, here's a New Testament text. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 14, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Don't hinder any child from coming to me, coming to know me, coming to be with me. Don't hinder them. And I think this, this obviously applies to this subject. And so I, I've thought about what is the application for us. If God values life, if God wants us to protect life, then, then what should we do? And here's, let me give you some quick applications. Um, and it's really this, to be a voice that speaks up to protect life. I want us all to be a voice that speaks up to protect life. And I'm gonna be very specific on what I mean by that, but here's why I think we need to be a voice that speaks up for life. is because, folks, life is a spiritual issue. Okay? This is not a social issue. This is not an educational issue. This is not just a sexuality issue. This is a spiritual issue. God had a spiritual purpose for what was going on in Matthew chapter two. And there are spiritual forces at work in our world. And it is a clash of the kingdoms. It is light and it is darkness. It is life and it is death. And those opposing forces are at war with one another. And so if we are going to at all impact this fight for life, then spiritual people have to stand up and speak up. It's a spiritual issue. So spiritual people, and what I mean by that is Christ followers who understand what scripture teaches, we have to take the initiative. But I've got some very specific ways that we can do that in an effectual tone that I think will make have an effect on our culture. So first, Speak up for others as you speak the truth to those you love. Speak up for others as you speak the truth to those you love. I wanna break this, this particular one down. So let me take the first part. Speak up for others. I want you to think back quick, quickly. I know what we left Matthew 2 a little while ago, but think back to Matthew 2 real fast. Who did God give the dream to to protect Jesus' life. Okay, it was re- it's, it's easy, guys. This is easy, okay? It, really easy. Yeah, to his dad, to Joseph. He gives the dream to Joseph. He doesn't give the dream to Jesus. He doesn't give the dream to the one who can do nothing about it. Jesus cannot make that journey from Bethlehem to Egypt by himself. That's my point. My point is he gave it to someone who could do something about it. 
And that's why those of us, those who are Christ, who call themselves Christ followers, we can do something about it. We can speak up for others who cannot speak for themselves. We can speak for the vulnerable. We can speak for those that are pre-born, who do not yet have a voice. And we are called to speak up for those others. We see that throughout scripture, not just for the, the pre-born child, but we see that for the vulnerable, for the widow, for the orphan, all of those folks. He says, we can speak up for them. So speak up for others. But what I want you to notice that I put at the end of that is as you speak the truth, and I think we just walked through the truth about this particular uh, issue, but to those you love. I think we've got to go back, and we've talked about embodying God's heart. We've got to go back and capture God's heart for people. People. That means people who might even think differently about this issue. Did you know God loves them? God loved the world. And guess what? There was probably a time where you may have thought different about this issue. And you thought differently than God thought, period. And he brought you to know him to conform you to the image of Christ. You see, I don't think anger changes people's minds. Don't forget, Romans chapter two, verse four, it's the Lord's kindness that brings us to repentance. Okay, this is not about getting angry. It's not about arguing. It's loving, it's praying, it's sharing the truth in love. Do you love the people you will talk to? Let's start there. Before we have that conversation, let's start it in an attitude and posture of prayer, of humility, of grace, so that we don't burn a bridge through anger, okay? So let's speak up for others as we speak the truth to those we love. Second, speak up from experience as you comfort others with the comfort you've received. Speak up from experience as you comfort others with the comfort you received. I wanna speak to a particular audience and you will know who you are. But statistics tell us that 25% of our population has been affected by abortion. 25%, male or female, doesn't matter. That means that a quarter of the folks listening right now have been affected by this, that this is a part of your past. And chances are, if this is a part of your past, it's probably somewhat a part of your present because studies tell us that mental illness is huge for those folks that have gone through this in their past, meaning that they struggle with anxiety, they struggle with depression, they struggle with even suicidal ideation. Um, I hate that for you. I, I really do. But here's what I want you to know, is that we have folks in our congregation that have walked through this. And guess what? They found Hope, healing, restoration, redemption, all of those things in Christ and in the fellowship and in community here in our church. Praise God. Hallelujah. So thankful for that. And maybe you're a part of that 25% that has never spoken up. 
you need to know that this is a place where you can find all of those things you hope for. And maybe you're one of those people that need to say, hey, I need to share my story with somebody else. Because there's somebody else that is out there that's saying, this is part of my past. I don't know what to do. I hate it. It it weighs me down. It's a burden on me. I struggle with this. I struggle with that. And they need to hear somebody who's gone through this and has that experience shepherd them to Jesus to find all of the wonderful things that we find in him. That's what 2 Corinthians says. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our own affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Why does God comfort you? Yes, for you, but also so that you can comfort someone else. If you've got this as a part of your story, there are people that are hurting out there who need to hear the hope, healing, comfort, mercy, all the wonderful things that just, we just read in that passage. Those things are available through Jesus, and we support that in our church. And then finally, speak up to offer help to protect life where you can. Speak up to offer help to protect life where you can. If we are going to be a voice that speaks up for life. We cannot just be a voice that speaks up and sit on the sidelines. We have to get in the game and support it ourselves, and we do. Uh, We have a For Life initiative that uh, this year is on its 10th year, and we have so many community partnerships, whether it's with pregnancy centers, whether it's with anti-trafficking agencies. Uh, we, have, we have a group of ladies that are here that just, they just quilt blankets that they give as gifts to those that are considering abortion so that they would say, this is your first baby gift. We have so many different ministries. We have abstinence education that we do in schools. We have so many different things because we want to speak up for life. We cannot just be a voice that speaks up if we're not willing to get off the sidelines and get in the game and support it ourselves. So what is God calling you to do? You see, the same thing that we believe about the preborn child, you are the postborn child. You, you are the born child that was protected for a purpose. What is it? How are you going to speak up for life believing that every child is heaven sent and should be protected for a purpose just as you were? Would you pray with me? Well, God, I thank you for the value that you place on life and it's because you are the giver of life, the creator of life. And I thank you that you protected our lives so that we can be voices that step up, we can be hands that help, we can be shoulders to cry on, we can be uh, arms that lift up and support. Lord, would you help us and lead us and guide us to fulfill your purpose Uh, in our families, amongst our friends, in our communities, Lord God, to be that voice that that speaks up the the truth, but to those that we love because you love them as well. So Lord, we thank you for the value that you place on life. Lord, we thank you that you, you gave your one and only son to die in our place so that we could have life 
and have it abundantly. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.